I love how Jimmy is having us read through the Bible together. I don't know if you recognize this, but when we are done with this sermon series, uh, we will have read, I think, the entire book of Mark. Um, and that's, that's something. We'll have done it together. Um, while we're about to read this whole chunk of Mark that's in your bulletin, it's all about who Jesus is and what he's doing and what, what he's claiming about himself. The sermon is going to focus on the middle section, just Mark 2, 23 through 28. And as we read, as we read this whole passage together, though, let yourself be confused by some things. Let yourself have some wonder and let yourself embrace this, this tension that exists between rest and anxiety and busyness. Let's read together. Mark 2, 16 through 3, 6. Excuse me, 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to Jesus, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again, Jesus entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a, a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or do, to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, help us now. Give us good news. Give us rest. We need your Sabbath. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Every year, the boy went to visit his grandmother for the summer. 
Every year, she had to pry him away from his Nintendo Game Boy in order to can and stockpile fruits and vegetables. Every year, he would walk with her down to the cellar to add to the shelves and shelves and floors stacked with the same cans and cans of peaches and green beans and all sorts of food that dated back years of time. There was something delightful about working with his grandmother. There's also something sad about her entire enterprise. Kind of innocent and maybe even a little dark. You see, the grandmother never, ever, ever ate the food. What the Nintendo-obsessed Nintendo little boy didn't realize was that his grandmother was a little girl during the Great Depression. Her parents had to scrounge for everything they had. They, they fought ferociously with each other, and the little girl's childhood was so horrific that she vowed to never again experience the anxiety of going without. So 70 years later, she was still, still canning vegetables. She developed a technique, a system, a workable solution. A workable solution that would perhaps give rest to her anxious mind. And yet it never satisfied. The system only masked her anxiety year after year, and the damaged woman never found rest. It was kind of like when you try to quench your thirst with a sodium-saturated Sprite, and the clear liquid that you actually need is water. When we experience brokenness in our world, human beings can't help we can't help but put systems like this in place, hoping for some sense of rest. You can take children who are victims of abuse, perhaps children of alcoholics or drug addicts, exhausted by continual chaos. A child can become a perfectionist, for example. And the irony is that she's striving for rest, but yet she gets further exhausted by her own perfectionism. And she would give anything just to slow down her mind. You may not have experienced things just like this, but I am guessing you know what I'm talking about. Human beings in an anxious, busy world need Sabbath. We need rest. It's built into our fabric. We need rest from our, our work. We need rest from schoolwork. We need rest from our anxieties. Some of you desperately long for rest from chronic diseases. But mostly, I think we need rest. I think mostly, we need rest from the systems, the techniques, the workable solutions that we use to cope that actually dangerously give us a false sense of rest or maybe even a false sense of superiority that we're about to look at. We need Sabbath, and the answer is before us. On one particular Sabbath, Jesus was walking in the grain fields, and his disciples were with him. Maybe they were cutting up, asking Jesus questions, maybe taking bets on what he's going to do next. You know, I got, I got five bucks on him healing a leper. That's what I'd do. They get hungry. So they, pl they pluck some grains of, uh, some heads of grain and rub it in their hands and make it edible and pop it in their mouths. 
This was common practice according to Jewish law, as you were permitted to eat from a stranger's field if you were in need, just as long as you didn't take a sickle to the fields and harvest it. So the disciples are eating heads of grain and going back and forth maybe like guys do, when all of a sudden, it's like the Pharisees just pop out with assault rifles. Put the heads of grain down. It's the Sabbath. They didn't actually have assault rifles. But this is a curious scene whenever I read it, whenever I see scenes like this. That's because I think that's the kind of image, at least, that I have. The Pharisees are the bad guys, right? I mean, the Pharisees always seem like they hit the scene just at the right time. They just like pop it out, out of nowhere like a villain in a comic book waiting to trap Jesus and his disciples. And perhaps it makes you question if even a story like this is just made up, right? Where these Pharisees come from? And who are the Pharisees? Why would Pharisees pop out of the middle of a random grain field out of nowhere to catch and correct students of some random rabbi for allegedly breaking the Jewish Sabbath laws? Well, first, as we know, and so did the Pharisees, this isn't just some rabbi, right? Mark has already told us in the first two chapters that he, that he healed a leper who started telling every about, everybody about it such that people were coming from every quarter to see Jesus. Jesus also claimed in the presence of Pharisees in the synagogues that he could forgive sins. He taught with authority in the synagogues. He cast out demons. He calmed fevers. His fame spread throughout Galilee, our text tells us earlier. He had already done so-called unlawful things on the Sabbath in front of scribes and Pharisees. He had been accused of blasphemy. That's quite a laundry list of power, authority, and good and bad press for just some rabbi in a grain field. The Pharisees had a vested interest, a vested interest in what Jesus was up to. Secondly, uh, I, think, I think we see these Pharisees as kind of flat characters. I kind of alluded to that a little bit earlier. Flat characters, in other words, um, they, they're just bad guys. But they're much more complex. Like the grandmother from the Depression, the Pharisees had a history. The Jewish people had been conquered by different nations for centuries. And about 200 years before the birth of Jesus, a Greek ruler named Antiochus IV conquered and forced the Jewish people to worship their gods. Uh, this video I've got, actually, if we can show that, it, uh, it'll give us a better idea of what happened. Uh, but, but as you watch this video, listen for the name Mattathias. All right, go ahead. In an attempt to destroy the Jewish religion, King Antiochus IV issued orders requiring all Jews to desecrate the Sabbath and holy days by sacrificing pigs, engaging in pagan practices, and refraining from circumcision. This was met with violent opposition and eventually an insurrection by Mattathias. He was the leader of the priestly Hasmonean line, whose descendants were also called the Maccabeans. After three years, his son, Judas Maccabeus, succeeded in regaining control of Jerusalem, purifying the temple and renewing the Jewish rites within it. Finally, the Jewish state in Judea became independent for the first time since the destruction of the first temple. Okay, uh, the revolt that they described is the reason uh, Jewish people celebrate Hanukkah, uh, if you don't know about that, but uh, for throwing over 
uh, for overthrowing Antiochus. Uh, that name, Mattathias, he organ- organized the Maccabean revolt, and his son, Judas Maccabeus, went and ex- executed the revolt. And he is recorded as saying, saying this to his children just before his death. Listen carefully. My children, show zeal for the law and give your lives for the covenant of our ancestors. My children, be courageous and grow strong in the law, for by it you will gain honor. You shall rally around you all who observe the law and avenge the wrong, avenge the wrong done to your people. Pay back the Gentiles in full and obey the commands of the law. This was the ancestry of the Pharisees. They arose out of the Maccabean revolt, and this is their story. They refused. They refused to see Israel fall back into the hands of the Greeks or anyone else for that matter. They had been pounded for centuries and oppressed. Their aim was to restore Israel to its rightful place and reign over the nations. They knew that God judged his people in the past for disobeying his commands and turning to other gods. Thus, in order to make themselves out as true Jews, to mark themselves out as true Jews, they were zealous for the law, zealous for the temple, and most importantly, for our passage today, they were zealous for the Sabbath. The Pharisees used things like the Sabbath as something that they could point to and say, look at me. Look at him. He's a true Jew. I'm a true Jew. They created a workable solution, a technique, a system to maintain a sense of rest from their oppression. And here's how they did it. They stacked regulation upon regulation upon regulation on top of God's law so that they would not break the Sabbath. And many of them them even martyred themselves for the Sabbath. Buried underneath all of this was the weightier matters of the law, as Jesus said. The very point and even the heart of the Sabbath buried under all these regulations. They had forgotten it. Mercy, justice, and blessing to all nations. And they were also waiting for a Messiah. A king who would lead the Israelites in defeat of the Gentiles to completely restore Israel. So, when the Pharisees ask Jesus, why are your disciples doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? That is such a loaded question. I mean, it's an enormous question. And, and they're doing something so much more significant than patrolling the, patrolling the grain fields for lawbreakers. They have seen Jesus do Messiah-like things. They have heard him announce that Israel's king had come, and yet they also saw him do things like eat and side with Gentiles. They're supposed to pay him back in full. The political views of Jesus did not match the political views of the Pharisees, and this, as one scholar writes, is the focal point of their clash with Jesus. The danger for the Pharisees lay in their obsession with national existence, their national pride and freedom. In other words, they had an obsession with their system, with their workable workable solution to provide rest for their nation, and Jesus didn't fit into it. Jesus had been announcing, he had been announcing his kingdom, a kingdom that would be a light to the Gentiles, and the Pharisees thought 
the kingdom would be only for the Jews. Jesus is like a big box store threatening to come to town. Now, before you get offended by that sentence and stop listening to anything else I say, please don't do that. Don't hear what I'm not saying when I say that. And I'm going to explain and I'm going to qualify. I'm not saying, I'm certainly not saying you're a Pharisee if you don't want box stores here. I love this mountain just the way it is. I love going to the plaza, the town hall, the pool. I love Walden. I love everything about it. Nothing has changed, and it gives me all kinds of childhood nostalgia. It is amazing. I love this place. But I also love the new addition to Pruitt's. I enjoy progress, too. <laughs> and so I think we need to be careful and thoughtful about Signal Mountain development. And I, I know people are working hard on that. And just this week, I read in the Signal Mountain Mirror, I don't know if you saw it, that civil the, the caption is that civil discourse prevailed at the meeting about this. It's awesome. But that's not what this illustration is about. So see, if, if, if that throws you off, come back, please. When I say Jesus is a box store, I want to simply help us all see why the Pharisees were so upset, to kind of get there with them. They had an, ag they had an agenda for Israel. And if, and if you're a person on the side of no box stores, then you have an agenda for this mountain. And when someone comes in with a different agenda, what do we do? We respond. Some of us, some of us go to meetings and debate in healthy ways, and some of us go picket and with signs in healthy ways. It's good. Uh, I bounced this off Jimmy, and he said yes, and he added, he added something to it. And he said, just imagine for the moment, if you practiced a religion here on Signal, and there was a law, and your God said plainly, no box stores allowed on my mountain. Okay? Do you see how this, is, this, this conflict with Jesus is amplified for the Pharisees? God said to them and us, do not break the Sabbath. Keep it holy, set it apart. And so they did whatever it took to keep the Sabbath. And they were good at it. So they watched Jesus in the grain fields to test him. They came to trap him to prove that he was not Messiah, to prove that instead he was what they called a Masith. And a, a beguiler of the people, they said. A, one who would lead Israel astray. And what would prove that? One simple question. Does Jesus guard the Sabbath like we do? Is he a true Jew? Could he be Messiah or is he Messiah? Jesus knows what they're all about. And his response, his response to them is so much more profound than their question, of course. And he doesn't squabble about the Sabbath with them. He cuts right to the heart of the issue. But first he asked them a question. He asked them a question that I think is a little bit sarcastic. The Pharisees were zealous for the law and, and they certainly knew their Torah well. And Jesus asked, have you not read? Have you not read? Have you not read your Torah, fellas? It was like he was saying, I know, I, I know you're tired of no one else getting it, but you are not getting it. 
And here, let me, let, let me show you what you're missing. Let me, let me show you for a second what you're missing. So then Jesus reminds them, and he tells them of a story. Maybe you've read it. In 1 Samuel 1, 21 through 22, the Pharisees would have known it very well. David, David was on the run from King Saul, and Saul had a problem. Uh, David had been anointed as king. And Saul was furious, absolutely furious to the point of going mad, and he was hunting David to kill him. And while David was on the run, he convinced a priest, while David was on the run, he convinced a priest uh, and, that, to give him this bread of presence because they were in great need and hungry. And the priest offered David and his men what was called the holy bread as it was only to be eaten by the priests. But that was all he had to offer. So David and his men ate it and were nourished. Now come back to Mark. The Pharisees may have understood Jesus to mean that our worship or our religious activities ought not to stand in the way of helping someone in need or is hungry. But the holy bread was not actually, if you go check this out, the holy bread was actually not related to the Sabbath. So Something else was going on here. Jesus was up to something else. He had another point in mind. And I agree with N.T. Wright, a New Testament scholar, who says this, quote, Jesus was subtly assaulting, he was subtly assaulting the misguided political and religious agendas for Israel. Jesus was subtly assaulting their obsessions with national existence and freedom that they hoped would give them rest. The reason I say subtly is that he leaves a crucial part out of the story because I think if he had been direct about this, they would have immediately taken him to the authorities and Jesus had much more work to do before going to his death. Jimmy and I were talking about this with Eric the other day. And Eric said this, does Jesus ever have compassion on, on, for a Pharisee? Seriously. He says, in the gospel accounts, do we ever see Jesus have compassion for the Pharisees? And Jimmy and I were like, yeesh. Then Eric says, have you ever tried to replace a set of steel stairs? And Jimmy and I were like, uh, Nope. Let me tell you how fun that is. It requires an acetylene torch. Uh, is I'm saying that right? It's not. It's not as. It's. It's. It's a little bit harder to say than pterodactyl, but it's. You know, it's acetylene. Okay. Getting rid of steel stairs requires an acetylene torch. However, steel stairs typically have a two-inch thick layer of concrete for traction. It doesn't matter if you have an acetylene torch. You're not getting through that concrete. You see, the problem is the concrete's in great shape. And it's the steel underneath that's rotting and needs to be replaced. So how do you get, how do you get through the concrete to get to the stairs? Not with the powerful finesse of an acetylene torch. You've got to use a sledgehammer. And it's violent, and it's messy, but it works. 
You have to break apart that outer surface so you can get in, so that you can get underneath with an acetylene torch and to take care of the really rotten parts underneath. I think that's the only way to a Pharisee heart. The Pharisee heart is so entrenched with its misguided political and religious agendas for Israel, oppressed for years, and they have put in place techniques and workable solutions to protect it. So when Jesus tells this story about David and the holy bread, I think Jesus is being subtle right now, right here with the Pharisees, but he has a sledgehammer behind his back and he is waiting to use it. And Doeg, Doeg is the sledgehammer. Anybody ever heard of Doeg? Doeg the Edomite? You don't know Doeg? I'm kidding. Doeg the Edomite. Doeg is the crucial part of the David story that Jesus left out. Doeg was a servant of Saul. Remember, remember Saul was trying to kill David. And Doeg saw, he saw the priest. Doeg saw it happen. He saw the priest give the uh, unlawful holy bread to David and his men. And so Doeg ran to tell Saul and told him all that had happened between David and the priest. So Saul called all the priests to him. He called all the priests to him and he ordered them to be slaughtered. And Saul's own personal servants, they wouldn't touch the priests. So Saul turns to Doeg. And Doeg killed 85 priests of Israel that day. 85? I can't. I can't even begin to explain the significance of that right now. I have the time to un unpack that. It is unheard of. Jesus used this story as a sledgehammer, a sledgehammer parable for his situation with the Pharisees. The, the correlations are amazing. N.T. Wright says that Jesus and his followers, Jesus and his followers are like David and his men. The Pharisees are like Doeg and the Edomites spying on him and then running off to tell the authorities. By telling this story, Jesus, I think Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, like Doeg rejected David as king, you are also choosing a misguided kingdom and you are rejecting me as the true king. This lines up with the next chapter of Mark that we read as Jesus went to the synagogue and he heals a man on the Sabbath. First, first he lets disciples eat grain on the Sabbath. Now he ups the ante and heals someone on the Sabbath. Oh, goodness. In the synagogue, by the way, after saying he is Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus is bringing out the sledgehammer from behind his back. And listen to this, and it just gets thicker. After this healing on the Sabbath, Mark 3, says, 6 says that the Pharisees went out immediately with the Herodians to talk about how to destroy Jesus. And then later in Mark 12, hold on, uh, this blows, blows me away, I love it. Later in Mark 12, as we get closer and closer to the cross, again, it is the Herodians and the Pharisees, the Herodians and the Pharisees plotting to trap Jesus. The Herodians were supporters of King Herod Antipas, who himself was an Edomite like Doeg. I don't know if any of that made sense, but it ought to blow your mind. Jimmy made a great point here this week, and he said, isn't the, the irony amazing how Jesus is bringing life on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees are plotting death on the Sabbath, and they're the rule keepers, right? They're the Sabbath keepers. 
You see, Jesus wasn't denying the Sabbath. Jesus never denied the Sabbath, nor did his disciples. Jesus loved the Sabbath. He was confronting the Pharisees' abuse of the Sabbath, and just as importantly, he's, he was correcting he was correcting their view of his own kingdom. He was condemning them for rejecting him as the true king, and yet all the same time, he shows them and his disciples the true point of the Sabbath. And Jesus declares about this, about his kingly role, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I am the one bringing restoration and mercy and justice and healing to all nations. By saying this and by saying that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, he is, he is pointing them back to the reality that the Sabbath was built into the creational order. Jesus was Lord of the Sabbath at creation. Jesus was Lord of Sabbath at the creation. He made, a, he made Sabbath. He made a rhythm to it. Man is to work for six days and rest on the Sabbath, just like God worked for six days and rest on the, on the Sabbath. And this is good for us. There's a beautiful rhythm in the Sabbath that provides human beings both the work and rest for which we so long. And it's a signpost to remind us of our need to rest. It's a signpost to remind us of our need to rest from our workable solutions. The creational, the creational rhythm of the Sabbath was also built into God's laws, you know. You see, after the fall of mankind, we became prone to abuse and twist work and to use it as a system. Um, prone to use work as a system to get ahead so we can rest. Um, the Lord instructed God's people to remember the Sabbath, to celebrate it as a joy. The fourth commandment from Moses it comes after God rescued the people out of Egypt, out of slavery. Out, they, they were rescued out of a technique and a workable solution set up by Pharaoh designed to oppress so that he could rest. God rescued them out of wandering in the wilderness and into the promised land. And this was the reason for the command. When you come into the land, remember how I rescued you. Remember the Lord and his great mercy. I am the Lord over Sabbath, says Jesus. I am master over your rest. See, not only was Jesus saying that the Sabbath points back, back to these things, but he was also saying that Sabbath points forward to his death and resurrection. Our rejected and despised king, the king of the Jews and the light to the Gentiles, hanging on the cross, he was destroyed because of our workable solutions. He was rejected and destroyed by political and religious agendas, and yet he was raised to new life as Lord of the Sabbath to give us Sabbath to give us rest. And this is why we worship and Sabbath on Sundays. We are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus every Sunday, the day he rose to bring us freedom and rest from our oppression, rest from our oppression from our workable solutions. I know so many of you have experienced this rest, right? And you relish it and, and you soak up this rest. That's a beautiful thing. 
by declaring that Jesus, by declaring that he is Lord over Sabbath, Jesus is certainly implying that he is the creator. He is saying, I made Sabbath. I was the first one to do it. I wrote it in the law. I can do what I want on it. I can feed people. I can heal people on it. And I can destroy your abuses of it. Jesus exposes the Pharisees' abuse of the Sabbath. He exposed their political and religious agendas that they were using as workable solutions to find rest from oppression. And right here, Jesus sets down the sledgehammer and picks up the acetylene torch. We aren't Jewish Pharisees in the first century. My guess is some of my guess is that some of you here, maybe, maybe you don't claim to be a Christian or religious at all. Um, but let me, let me ask us all this question. What kind of systems, what kinds of techniques, what kinds of workable solutions do you suppose we use in order to find rest? And in so doing, not, not necessarily reject Jesus, but maybe, but replace Jesus. We replace Jesus as the king of rest. What systems and techniques are making you so tired that you can't sleep at night? What, what workable solutions are, you making, are making you anxious and exhausting you to the point of not wanting to wake up in the morning and face them again? What workable solutions? What are you good at that ultimately make you look down your nose at others? I am the hypocrite of hypocrites. Um, Lately, every time someone asks me how I'm doing, my response is, so busy. Yeah. But I know I'm amongst friends because I I feel like I hear the same thing from just about everybody else that I'm close with, (laughs) I talk to. How's it going? Busy. Busyness it's kind of become the it thing. I think, I think my busyness, taking the acetylene torch, hold on. I think my business is the, a, layer, a top layer of concrete. So the reason I'm so busy is because, this is going to sound so prideful, it's because I have a, lot of, a variety of gifts. I'm good at getting a whole lot done in a day. So that's another layer of concrete keeping me from Jesus and his rest. And the warning I heard from Jesus this week is this. Don't let these gifts be like steel that turns rotten underneath. Because that's what can happen if I'm not careful. I am good at getting stuff done and you're not, I can think about people. See, I don't claim to be a true Jew, but look, look what I can do. I'm a true human. And then there's another layer. When I fail at getting stuff done, it can be absolutely devastating to me. When I fail to meet my own standards, and and I do that a lot, (laughs) then I have to put up other systems and workable solutions and work harder and harder to find rest for my weary soul. 
Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to hustle. Jesus hustled and Jesus rested. Paul was a tent maker and a missionary to the entire Mediterranean. That's, that's hustle. But I think there's a fine line, this tension, this tension between hustle, efficiency, organization, and using, using them all to try to save you and give you rest doesn't work. Such that you no longer see Jesus because you are buried beneath concrete and steel. I have a friend who is very politically informed. Um, Ever since MTV's Rock the Vote campaign, he has become more and more politically active. And he's really, really, really good at researching and navigating politics and debating them and and, and, and navigating politics worldwide. He's, he's phenomenal. He doesn't, really care, he doesn't really care what political party you're in or subscribe to. But if, you are, if, you're, if you're just not engaged politically, you are un-American. And I would say subhuman in his eyes. And I've heard it. I, most certainly, the greatest, sin, the greatest sin in his religious system is not to vote. So I have overheard conversations with him and and other friends, and when this topic comes up, he will absolutely berate someone like a Pharisee waiting in the grain field. How dare you not vote? You've got to be politically informed. It is your responsibility as an American. And so he can say, look, he can say, look, I am a true American. In other words, I am a true human, and you are not. What workable systems do you have that give you a false sense of rest or a false sense of superiority? You see, like the, like the politically informed voter, like the wonderful, wonderful grandmother who survived the depression, like the abused child, or the successful workaholic or the burned out successful student, like the Pharisee, but in our own ways, We reject or replace Jesus and his rest with our workable solutions that will give us Sabbath. We think will give us Sabbath. And they just make us busy and anxious or at worst snobby and oppressive. And with our workable solutions, with our workable solutions, we are Doeg the Edomite, nailing our great high priest on the cross destroying the Lord of the Sabbath and the rest he offers. I'm convinced, I'm convinced we all cope with anxious hearts in an anxious and busy world by stacking techniques, systems, and workable solutions like cans and cans of green, bean to make, green beans to make, make some sense of rest for ourselves. We trust them for Sabbath and it only leads to a denial of our humanity Instead, let's rest on Jesus for Sabbath. Let's rest on the true Jew. Let's rest on the only true human. So how do we do this? I don't think I know. (laughs) I got to the end and I was like, I don't know how to do this. Where do we start? And our our passage for Mark doesn't really give us something to do except respond. 
So that's good for me. And I think the right response, however, is terrifying. It's a little bit terrifying. We ask Jesus for help. If all of what I've said is true, we ask Jesus for help, the Lord of the Sabbath. Some of us need to pray, Lord of the Sabbath, take your sledgehammer to my concrete canning cellar. And here's the amazing thing about that. If Jesus wants you, and even if you don't pray, he will come for you and start knocking on that concrete until you do. Some of us, some of us have already prayed this, and, and, he, and he has pounded the concrete. And those, those of us need to continue praying daily, Lord, bring me your acetylene torch and keep extracting what is rotten. Jesus is Lord over the Sabbath. He made it and he was the first to do it. He is master over rest and you can't, you just, you just can't manipulate him to get it. You can't work to gain his rest. You, you can't work to gain his rest. And here's the good news. Jesus is the unworkable solution. Right here is the acetylene torch. The master of rest was destroyed for you. Let that continue to work its way to the rotten parts. Jesus is calling to us, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let's pray. Jesus, some of us need the sledgehammer this morning. Some of us need an acetylene torch. No matter where we are, show us, show us where we are. Take this hard word to, and take this good news that you died and rose again to give us rest. And take it to our workable solutions. Destroy them and raise us up with you and make us true humans. It is in your powerful name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.